Good morning. I'm Dave Selvig, and our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Colossians. You can follow along in your Bible or use the screens, or it's also uh, in your bulletin. I'll be reading selected verses from Colossians chapter 1 from the New American Standard Bible. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. Just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the word of the Lord. Today we are starting a new series in the book of Colossians, and uh, it's going to be called Christology. And Christology just uh, means a study of Christ. You know, anything that has the word ology in it is the study of the thing that comes before the word ology, right? So anthropology, anthro meaning man, is the study of man. Christology is the study of Christ. Uh, Before we get into the sermon, I wanted us to uh, recite something together as a prayer. So on the next slide, we have a little prayer I'd like us to pray out loud. I'll get us started. We... Start with the confession that we are not worthy to speak nor to hear. We come by habit, hunger, and obligation. We come only by grace. Our prayer is still, I believe, help my unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we are going to uh, dig into Colossians, and we'll focus on chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And uh, this is a book written by the Apostle Paul. He's an apostle because an apostle was determined to be so if they were, uh, if they were an eyewitness of Christ. And the word apostle just means to be sent. And so uh, Jesus himself has sent uh, Paul uh, with the gospel. So he's an ambassador for Christ, and Paul was a Jew who was radically opposed to Christianity, but was converted when he met the Lord Jesus on the road uh, to Damascus. And so that's Paul's backstory. And when he's writing this letter uh, to Colossae, he's writing to a city that he's never visited before, and he's writing to uh, a church that he cares about, even though he doesn't know them, from a jail cell. He's uh, been imprisoned And uh, the book of Colossians is the highest Christology in the Bible, meaning that there's no other book in the whole Bible that has a higher view of who Jesus was than the book of Colossians. 
We're going to get to a, a few of those verses in just a little bit. But the reason that Paul wrote about Jesus in such a lofty manner is because the primary belief that Paul was combating in the city of Colossae was this belief that Jesus was not God, that he was a wise person, he was an influential rabbi, maybe even a prophet, but he was not divine. And so Paul is trying to counter that belief. Uh, we have verses like this, chapter 1, verse 15. This is speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And here Paul is saying that God is invisible because he is spirit. But the lone image bearer, meaning that the only thing that has made the invisible God visible is Jesus. There's nothing else. Everything else is grasping at divinity. Everything else is explaining divinity in some partial and imperfect way. But Jesus is the full image, the visible representation of who and what and all that God himself is. I want to tell you, there is no other verse in the whole Bible that's as high as Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The closest we have to it outside of Colossians is from the mouth of Doubting Thomas. Uh, Thomas was one of the disciples, and he was the most skeptic of them all. Jesus walked through a wall, and he showed himself and his wounds to the disciples who had huddled in fear in a room. And then out of the mouth of Doubting Thomas, he's the one who asked to touch Jesus' wounds with his own hands. And after he touched it, Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and he falls face flat in front of Jesus. So that's one statement, but that's just sort of a person's opinion, right? That's the way the narrative flow is in that story. Another one that comes close is in the book of Revelation when John, John was one of the disciples, apostles, and he uh, was... Um, uh, on an island, and he had a vision, and an archangel, a uh, high-ranking angel, visits him, and John thinks it's God, and so he bows down and starts worshiping the angel, and the angel says, get up, what are you doing? I'm not the Lord, I'm not God. And then later on in the book, Jesus shows up, and John does the same thing. He bows down and worships, and Jesus says, that's right, keep worshiping. So that's an implication that Jesus is God. But very infrequently does the Bible make the divinity of Christ as clear as the book of Colossians. So another uh, example of this is in chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's just another way of restating verse 15. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Now, this is kind of an interesting juxtaposition of series that we're doing. Because um, the last series that we finished last year was the book of 1 John, written by John. And if you remember, the thrust of the book of 1 John was God made flesh. 
right? It's the Word made flesh. That was the whole point of 1 John. John said things like, I know God's invisible, but if you love one another, if you make, uh, the way to make divinity tangible is by being loving towards one another. That's the way we get to see the face of God is if we are able to love each other. And Colossians sort of does an opposite thing. Instead of insisting that God was man, here Colossians insists that Jesus is God, that man is God. So it's sort of an opposite kind of thing happening here. As I thought about this, um, I have two questions I want to ask us. If Jesus is God, if Jesus really is God, then he is the perfect embodiment of the fullness of deity. Is there any other construct that's able to accurately or sufficiently convey who God is? Another way to ask that question is, does God boil down to our church practice? Is this all there is to it? Is God just praying? Is God just singing? Is God just listening to sermons or doing good deeds, giving your money away? Is that all God boils down to? And I don't know what your answer is, but there's nothing, no construct on earth that can adequately represent divinity. You have to feel Always carry around with you this feeling that you're waiting for more. Because all of your life, you have never experienced the fullness of deity. Because everything outside of the person of Christ falls short. There is no way our church life, our Sunday worship, our good deeds, our morality, decency, or civility is the sum total of who God is. God still to us outside of Christ is primarily a mystery. We don't have the answers we need. We don't even know what questions to ask. I want you to live with this tension, with this truth that we need more of God, that we need God to stretch us and grow us and show us, teach us, make us, mold us, this isn't it. If you have problems with Christianity, good for you. You should have problems with Christianity because this construct is woefully inadequate. 2,000 years of Christianity have yet to touch the tip of the iceberg of who God is. Next time you're talking to a non-Christian friend and they have complaints about the church, I want you to agree with them. Say, you're right. We still need more. Then we need your help. Would you join the cause? Because everything we have seen is not it. Okay, second question. If Jesus really is God, and in Christ the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, if everything really is of God, Everything physical is from God. How come we have so many dichotomies, 
and compartmentalizing and exclusions and demonizing that happen in the world. Here's what I mean. Why is it the church that the church has the reputation of excluding things from divine domain? Why aren't Christians uh, embracing all scientific disciplines? Why aren't we the leaders in understanding how the world is made, how God created everything? Why are we so quick to write off whole disciplines of study and research and science? Do you know that one of the more satisfying things that people say to me about me is that I'm a thinker? You know why it's so satisfying? Because when they say it, it's right after they realize or learn that I'm a pastor. They have this assumption about Christians that Christians don't like to think. They have this thought that Christians aren't intellectual, that Christians don't research anything. Christians don't want to learn and grow. We've learned everything. We understand everything. We have all the answers already. That we're not hungry people. And I'm telling you, if you believe that Jesus is God, that this is God's universe that we live in, then you have to believe that nothing is off limits. That it's God's universe. And if you claim to believe in God, you should be the leaders in every scientific field, in literature, in the arts. I've heard from so many artists in New York, for example, who have been criticized for being an artist. And they hear criticisms like, if you are a Christian, how can you be an artist? Isn't art secular? What do you mean you act? What do you mean you paint? If you really are a Christian and you have all these gifts, why aren't you working directly for the church? Please don't come directly work for the church. Go be an influence out there. I don't know uh, what you believe, the world believes about Christians, but it's not that we embrace God's creation. It's not that we are curious and we're hungry to learn and grow. But the opposite is true. We, people believe that Christians are anti-intellectuals, that we like to stick our heads in the sand, that we don't believe in carbon dating, that we're not thoughtful, that we're not honest intellectually or emotionally. Verse, chapter 1, verse 16 to 17. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This entire universe belongs to God. Every physical rule that we are trying to study and understand, God created. It came from God's creative power and imagination. I was staring at this image. Some of you may have seen this. We just by accident last week or so discovered the very best image we have of dark matter. That to date, we have never seen a better image of dark matter in the universe. 
Why isn't that being written about by Christians? We of all people should be the most excited that we have this image of dark matter. The week before that or two weeks before that, I was reading an article about black holes and how we have far more black holes than we realized. Why aren't Christians writing about that? Why aren't we praising God for that study or discovery? It's God's universe. It's all his, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. Somehow, Jesus, who is God, is the creator of our known universe. He made you. He made dark matter. He made antimatter. He made light. He made life. By the way, our wedding verse uh, was this verse right here. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. August 16, 1997. All of our mental, psychological, intellectual, and physical constructs are woefully inadequate. All of us were grasping at reality, but none of us quite get it. On this side of heaven, we see, but in a mirror, dimly. Uh, a couple of implications of this truth. If this is true, if this is what you believe as a Christian, it means that the greatest dynamic in your life is the tension that you feel to grow and to change and to transform, to be stretched and to expand as a person. You realize how little you know, how little you understand, how small you are. You should not be satisfied with who you are, where you're at. You should want more. You should be a student for the rest of your life. The second implication of this I want to point out is that the church, the Christian church, cannot be an echo chamber of what you already know and believe. If your desire is to come to church so that you can hear the same beliefs that you already have repeated to you from the pulpit, You're coming to church for the wrong reasons. You need to come to church so that you can be contradicted, so that you can be stretched and challenged beyond what you already know and believe. When you talk to other Christians around you, you shouldn't be driven by a desire to agree with each other, but to help each other grow. And I want to point this out because my experience of church is we are undifferentiated beings who come to be with other undifferentiated people so that we can all be the same people and not grow and not be stretched. We really want the comfort of sameness more than new revelation, new information, a new perspective. And so this series, I want to ask the question, what do you believe? What do you believe? And more important than what you believe, I want to ask you the question, what are you coming to believe? 
So uh, here's Iowa, how I want the next um, few minutes to go, is I've picked out a few things that I really have come to believe uh, about life and about God and about the Bible uh, in verses 1 through 14. I've picked out just a few things. I'm not going to go real deep into it, but I want to just say to you, these are the things I believe. And I want to get you started. And what I want you to do is just check off the box if you believe that also. It's just a starting point. And all throughout Colossians, revolving around Christ, I want us to ask, do we believe this? And what are the implications of what we believe, okay? So first, in verse 1, we have this phrase, will of God. I want to say to you today that I believe in the will of God. I have bad history with Christians exploiting the notion of the will of God. For example, one argument you will hear a lot if you talk to non-Christians is that the will of God has been used to propagate uh, wars, create conflict for political and financial gain all throughout human history. And if you study history, you will find that some of this is true, some of it is false. But in general, it is true that human beings have been exploiting the notion of God's will. For example, slavery. Christians use the will of God, quote unquote, to justify slavery. They did. Um, Christians, for example, have used the will of God to find a romantic partner. Now, uh, I have done this in the past where I'd call up a girl or I guess it was calling up a girl mostly. There's no email or anything like that. Uh, and I'd say, you know, I've been praying about you. I've been praying about us. And the conversation sort of goes from there. Okay, if you're going to be honest with yourself, how many of you have uh, been either on the receiving end of such manipulation or have practiced manipulation in that sense? Let me see a show of hands. One, two... Keep it up. Let's see. I'm proud of them. Three, four, five. It's true. Um, furthermore, Christians have used will of God, the will of God, to avoid responsibility. It's not my decision. I felt it was God's will. God told me to. Or we use the will of God to avoid thinking. We don't want to think. We just chalk it up to God's will. Here's the best thought that the Bible has about the will of God. It's found in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 says this. God's will is not a matter of having information or even insight about what you're supposed to do. But God's will is primarily for the renewing of the mind with which you use the mind which you use to discern what is good and pleasing and perfect. That is, God's will is not primarily directed at some specific circumstance or decision you are making. In that sense, theologically speaking, I believe God backs off from being a micromanager in your life. It is God's will that your mind be renewed. The mind that you use 
to see the circumstance, to discern what's happening. And God wants you to bring that changed, growing, becoming wiser self to bear on the circumstance. Meaning, he doesn't want to change what you see. He wants, you, he wants to change how you see. The mind is what he's after. That's what Romans 12 says. And that mind will be able to verify, testify what is good, pleasing, and perfect. In other words, wisdom doesn't come from fools. God wants you to be a wise person. And from the place of being wiser, you're going to be able to discern wiser thoughts. So God says, I know this circumstance seems important. And it's, it is important. And it's hard. And I get it. But my primary objective this opportunity for me, God's saying, is to use this circumstance to help you grow and stretch and change. I want to help you become a mature person through the circumstance, not necessarily have the most perfect outcome in the circumstance itself. You don't like that. I can tell. You want God to drop some knowledge. You want the winning lotto numbers. I know. I do too. It's like Neo saying, how do I dodge bullets? And Morpheus says, dodge bullets? You're not going to dodge bullets at all. There's no bullets. Right? It's your mind that's changing. That's the most important aspect of God's will that I believe uh, we are to understand. That my will, my will is inferior and immature and partially informed at best. And God's will in my life is that I become mature. And that a mature person shows up when there's a crisis. And that doesn't feel good initially because I feel responsible and I don't like responsibility. Non-Christians are true. Christians do use Christ as a crutch. That's the bumper sticker I like to see. Honest little confession on the back of Christian cars. Christ is my crutch. So many Christians just stop thinking, stop processing, stop thinking things through. They stop short and say, oh, it's God's will. Oh, well. What they're really doing is confessing their emotional immaturity in that they are fearful of responsibility. They don't want to grow. <clears throat> Another phrase is found in verse 3. The Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know uh, about all the differences between Christians and non-Christians. I've been wrong so much. It's like me trying to decide who's Chinese or Korean or Japanese. I can't tell anymore. You're right, white people. We do all look the same. So I don't think we should judge who's a Christian, who's not a Christian based on externalities. If the Bible teaches anything about that is that we'll be surprised. That's the parable of the sheep and the goats. We're going to be shocked at who's there and who's not there. Trust me. But here's one thing I've toyed around with. One little thing that I've sort of been tracing over the years is this idea of the lordship of Christ. 
And here's what I'm looking for when I meet, per, when I meet a Christian, is I want to know if they feel to me like a person under authority. You know, I kind of like the powerful person who sort of has a reluctance, who has a little timidity. And when you look at them right in the eyes, they kind of look away a little bit. I love that. You know, my old boss, for all the criticisms I have of him, I give this to him. Every time there was a problem or a serious situation, I saw his eyes fall. And I can see him sort of becoming prayerful. And he's not searching his mind to figure out what he wants, but he's really asking, God, what's happening here? How can I best serve this circumstance? And I see a sense of submittedness in his spirit. And I so respect that about him. And this is what I look for in Christians. Are they a submitted person? Do they understand that one of the uh, primary pillars of what it means to be a follower of, of Christ is to have a leader in their life? And there's many of you in this room that I've come to know, and I respect so many things about you, but the thing I respect most of all is the sense that you are a submitted person, that you are a steward, you understand that you're answerable, that your life is not your own, but the life you now live in the flesh, you live for Christ. I feel that from you sometimes. Jesus uh, also identified this trait of being a person under authority as the key defining trait of somebody who has faith. This is a story of the centurion soldier, if you want to read about it. Jesus praised this person because he saw faith when he said that he's a submitted person, a person under authority. Okay, next is verse 5. We have the phrase heaven. Do you believe in heaven? I uh, think I believe in heaven. I've thought I believed in heaven. Uh, but this uh, last season in my walk, I've really come to believe in heaven. In fact, I'm going to say it. I believe in heaven. I think there is an afterlife. And there's, it's not a lot of uh, proof I have, but here are the three reasons why I've come to really believe in heaven. Number one is I believe in the law of thermodynamics, that consciousness can't be created or destroyed. Where does it go? I don't think it goes anywhere. I don't think it disappears. So that's number one. I'm not going to go into that. Number two, number two is uh, anecdotal evidence. There's just too much evidence of life beyond. Uh, in my life story and in other stories I've heard and read, I've come to believe in the existence of something outside beyond death, that death is really a door. That if we were to all close our eyes and die... There's something afterwards. We're going to know finally. We're going to see finally. We're going to touch finally that the colors that we think are colors are black and white compared to the colors, the spectrum that await us. You have silly, silly, uh, like anecdotal evidence, like, you know, most of us are, are uh, you know, uh, trichromatic. We have three color cones in our eyeballs. But there's just a couple of people in the world who are tetrachromats. They have four color cones, and they literally see millions of colors more than we do. Like, that's crazy to me, right? And so I think there is more. Um, 
Another third final reason is this idea of consciousness. I don't know if you believe in the literal story of the fall, Adam and Eve eating from the tree and then um, becoming uh, fallen creatures. Um, I, I believe at least this much about it. I believe that when God breathed his breath into Adam and Eve and they had life and they're declared to be created in God's image, that right there, the breath of God, that's consciousness. That's a little piece of divinity, human consciousness. And I think that when Adam and Eve fell and they sinned, that was the introduction of self-consciousness. They were ashamed. They suddenly realized they were without clothes, and they felt shame about it. They became self-conscious, and all of life after that became uh, an impulse to cover up the shame to deal with the self-consciousness. So consciousness makes us aware beyond our own existence. And then self-consciousness draws all that energy inward towards our own belly button. And now we're ashamed. And when I think about that, I realize that self-consciousness is at the center of all that is evil. Self-centeredness, selfishness, the greed, the desire to exploit and use all things outside of their intended context for the purpose of what? I think covering up our self-consciousness, our desire to return to a state of consciousness that's free of self-consciousness. I know I'm getting really philosophical there, but the point is I think that we have a consciousness from God that I think continues beyond death, and I think there's a heaven Uh, Verse 6 is the word grace. And grace, I believe, is the intended economy and dynamic of the universe. It is the energy that we need. Whenever you've come in contact with grace, you have felt energized. You have felt hope. You have felt something literally surging through your body. That's grace. And we were created by grace for grace. That's the fuel we run on. But instead, the world is what? All around works. We have to earn and sustain and maintain and perpetuate. Everybody peacocking and showing off, trying to one-upmanship the other person. Being jealous. Scarcity. You know, that's our world. That's the opposite of grace. And it's killing us. We're killing each other. I think grace, the final... Uh, world, when it's in its final form, will be run on grace, fueled by grace. It's going to be healing for the world. I believe that. I believe we are made for grace. Uh, Verse 9 is this idea of being filled. I believe that human beings are vacuous creatures. Left to my own devices, I will fill myself with something, emotionally or philosophically. I will find some ways to fill myself because I am empty. There's a death spiral that I, by default, start uh, spiraling down if I'm not filled with something that pulls me up another way. Uh, Job chapter uh, 34 says this, if it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. Jesus in John 19 says, I am 
thirsty. He's not talking about his physical thirst. He's hanging on the cross after being tortured. He's not suddenly noticing that he has a physical need. Or, no, he's talking about his spiritual thirst, the withdrawal of God, his vacuous nature as a human being. That's us. Tell me that you've met one human being other than yourself who is not vacuous by nature. Everybody is. And I think that unless we are filled with God, we're going to be filled with other things. And I choose God. I want God. I want to be filled with God. Finally, we have in verse 14 this phrase, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I want to put these two together because I think we have too trite an understanding of what forgiveness of sins is. Forgiveness of sins is not your fine. Forgiveness of sins is you did wrong, but I forgive you. So now we're just restored relationally. That's not what that is. It's not just your conscience is clean. But the forgiveness of sins is talking about connection to the divine in such a way that now God is redeeming your life. He's fixing you up. And all that you've lost and all that is broken about you is going to be restored. All of your tears are going to be wiped away. Everything that's ever been taken from you is going to be given back to you tenfold, a hundredfold. You will not have loss in heaven. That's what that means, that this world, apart from God connecting to it, is going to spiral towards death, unredeemed. And I suggest to you that this is the greatest need you feel, the need for redemption in your life. That's why every movie you've ever seen is about redemption. If it has touched you at all, if you ever shed a tear in a movie, it's because there was some redemptive element in it. The restoration of something that was lost, the vindication that comes from uh, going through injustice. This is all redemption. And you felt it. You feel it inside of you. And that's why I believe that human beings are crying out for redemption. This is the story underneath every story that's ever been told. So what do you believe? What do you believe about life? And I want to keep pressing this point for the next eight weeks as we go through the book of Colossians. Because I've talked to so many non-Christians. And just because they're non-Christian doesn't mean they're thinking either. They're just like us. Human beings who don't want responsibility. Human beings who are anti-intellectual and don't really want to face the truth about the universe, about who they are and who they're not and what they need in their life. I need God in my life. I am no good without God in my life. I need to be filled. I need to be redeemed. I need grace. I need to have the hope of the afterlife. And I need Jesus' authority to be over me. And I need to answer to him because I need somebody to live for beyond myself. I just am not enough. That's me. That's what I believe. What do you believe? Would you bow your heads? Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made. We confess that more often than not, you seem far and you're invisible. And even Jesus, who is visible, was so long ago. So we struggle with our faith. But God, I pray, 
uh, that you make yourself real to us. And it is also my confession that when I really do think about it and examine everything in my life, I land on believing you. I choose you because the evidence is simply too overwhelming. So Jesus, I open myself to you and I invite you into our church today and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.